right, good morning, Four Oaks. I'm Pastor Paul, lead pastor here at Four Oaks Killarn. Let me just say, as I'm looking around this morning, I notice a lot of you have a little bit of a bounce in your step. You're a little chipper, a little, little upbeat. Let me just say, you're a bunch of idolaters. That's all I got to say. Now, now, you're the idolaters, little I, because at least you're here. The chief idolaters are the ones driving back right now from Clemson. And so anyway, God, not my business. Okay? That's between them and God and then our facial recognition software. But anyway, we, 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 we know who is, who's, who's involved in this. Okay. Hey, guys, seriously, good to be back from the, the outer darkness of COVID where there was, trust me, much weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, a programming note before we get started here. We just wrapped up uh, a class, a four-week class we did this fall called um, uh, The Apostle Paul, His Ministry Message in um, and his mission. And um, all those videos are now uh, posted online for you um, if you didn't get a chance to go. Now, we do have a group that's departing this Saturday for, for Greece and Turkey, about 40 of us going. We appreciate you praying for us. Where we're going to be retracing Paul's missionary steps of his second and third journeys. But while we are gone, one of the ways just to kind of help you stay connected with what we're doing, um, I do a pastoral devotional uh, Mondays through Fridays where we track uh, the sermon passage for that coming Sunday. But while, while we're gone, we're going to be doing updates from places like Corinth and Athens and Ephesus and doing sort of devotionals as we go along. So if the, that's going to start not this week, but the next week while we're there. That's October 2nd. But check, check that out. It'd be a great way to, for all of you to stay connected with what's happening over there. But of course, this morning, we're in Matthew chapter 10. So I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles there as we continue this series. Now, as we have seen in Matthew 8 and 9, Jesus' public ministry is like a one-man tour de force, Right? I mean, this is a man who is literally speaking things into existence. He's raising the dead. He's speaking life into things with a mere touch. He's curing leprosy. He's making the blind see, the lame walk, the, the, the mute to, to be able to talk. And all of these things Matthew is recording for us to make it crystal clear about who Jesus is. This is no mere man. This is no mere teacher. This is no mere prophet. This is a man who has the authority of God behind him. This is the Messiah King. In fact, he is God. Because that's crucial to grab a hold of because if he is just a man, just a man can't forgive sins. Just a man can't give life. But the God man, he has the authority to forgive sins. And so Matthew has just been sort of pouring it on in Matthew 8 and 9. But in Matthew 10, things take what might seem to be a surprising turn. And the surprising turn is simply this, that this one-man show, this tour de force, then turns to his disciples and says, join me. He says, not only join me, but I want you, and you are going, to do some of the very same things that I have been doing. You, in fact, are going to be an extension of my ministry as the kingdom of God is being ushered in. In, in, in effect, he's sort of passing the kingdom baton to them as well for them to run alongside of him. Now, I know this is hard for many of you to fathom, but actually in high school, one of my things was track and field. Snicker, 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 okay? Just, just get it out, it's okay. 
in my, in my event, my specialty, quote unquote, was the 400 meters, right? And let me just say, I was the only person in the history of Chattanooga to finish dead last in three consecutive heats, but still medal, all right? And that is possible if your other participants don't show, right? Or they default because of injury. All I know is that I was running three or four heats, I was last every time, but somehow I got a ribbon that's in my box somewhere at home, right? Well, my favorite event, both to run and to watch, and still is, by the way, track and field, is the relay. Nothing quite like it, and you know that for the relay, your very, bur- for your very best runner runs in what position? The last, right? The, 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 the relay leg, the, um, what's, what's the word I'm looking for here? Yeah, that, that, that thing, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the anchor, of course. But as important as that position is, and you can think about Jesus as being the anchor leg in running, but we know that all of the, of, the, of the legs of the relay race are, are important because that baton has got to make its way around. And it has to be ta- passed and it has to be done with care. And in our passage this morning, Jesus hands the gospel torch, the kingdom torch to his 12 disciples. And he seemingly, surprisingly, invites them in to this exercise with him of building and participating in the kingdom. And as we're going to see, this has a lesson for us as well. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to invite you to stand. We're just going to read the first four verses here together to start. But Jesus, or Matthew tells us this, and he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus, Simon, the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Let's pray. Father, Christianity and the building of your kingdom is not a spectator endeavor. It's one that by your grace you have actively invited us into to participate. And so, Father, we don't know why you did this. It seems backwards that you would take broken vessels, broken people, and use them, but nonetheless, it's what you've designed to show that the surpassing power comes not from us, but from you. And so, Lord, we pray now that you would give us a vision into what this means for our lives. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. You may take your seats. Now, let me just say this right off the top. We are actually going to look at all of chapter 10 because that's sort of the the way the narrative is put together. And we're going to read these verses as we go. So I didn't want to make you stand up for 42 verses or what have you. So so we're going to read it in chunks, but I want to use these first four verses to sort of set up what's happening here. Last week we saw that Jesus ends chapter 9 with an exhortation to his disciples, and he says, do this, disciples, pray that the Lord would send out 
harvesters into the field. Pray that he'll send out workers. And the disciples are like, great, we'll pray that. Little knowing that the answer to their own prayers is themselves. Now, wait a minute, Jesus, because at this point, remember, they've just been spectators. And they've been having an awesome time. They've been having a front row seat to resurrections and teachings. And I mean, it, it's, they've loved being a part of the entourage of Jesus. But now Jesus, in turn, turns to them and says, you know, all these miracles and things that I've been doing and participating in. Now, by my authority, I'm going to give you the authority to do the same. And what we have here in chapter 10 are his instructions to his disciples as they go off on this first mission trip, this first mission endeavor. Now, as we read this chapter, you're going to note that it's obvious that Jesus is not just speaking about that three or four day trip or whatever it's going to be that they're about to embark on, but he's actually giving them instructions about the nature of their ministry after Jesus is gone. That there is going to be a, a period of 30, 40 years for most of them where Jesus is gone, but the mission continues. Jesus is gone, but he continues his ministry through the ministry of the apostles, and we're going to see you and me. So I'm going to make just sort of four observations about what it means to participate in the building of God's kingdom with him. And we're going to do these one at a time and read through chunks of the scripture one at a time um, to kind of make it more easily digestible. But number one, what we're going to see, first of all, for the disciple of Christ, there must be a kingdom urgency. Look at verse 5. We're going to read down through verse 15. These 12 Jesus sent out, instructing them, Go nowhere among the, the Gentiles and enter no town of the Samaritans, but rather to the, go to the, rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You receive without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff, for the laborer deserves his food. And whatever town or village you enter, find out who is worthy in it and stay there until you depart. As you enter the house, greet it. And if the house is worthy, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. And if anyone will not receive you or listen to your words, shake off the dust from your feet when you leave that house or town. Truly I say to you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. The first thing Jesus tells them, and this is going to be a little strange, okay, when we look at the whole scope of the gospel. But the first thing that Jesus tells them is, disciples, I'm, I'm inviting you into this with me, but I want you to only go to the people of Israel. No Samaritans, no Gentiles stick with ethnic Jews. And that is strange when we think about the way Matthew ends his gospel. What does Matthew end his gospel in Matthew 28? What does he tell them? Go therefore to whom? 
the whole world, the nations. And so, so what is Jesus saying here? Because clearly, he's not saying that Gentiles, us, that's for most of us, aren't part of God's plan. What is he saying? I want to say just two things very, very briefly. First, it's simply a recognition of the way God is going to reach the world. See, God designed it in the Old Covenant that he was going to begin with a beachhead of ethnic Jews. It was going to be, these were going to be God's chosen people set apart. Salvation was going to come to them first, and then their job was then to take the kingdom of God and the gospel of God to the world. And in fact, we see that same strategy being employed by Paul. Even though Paul was the, the minister par excellence to Gentiles, where would Paul always go first in his missionary jobs? Stops to the synagogue. And he would preach there, and a couple of Jews would, would, would come to know Christ. The majority wouldn't, then he would go to the Gentiles. And this pattern repeated itself. So one, let me just say, I think we, we have an emphasis here first on strategy. But here's, the, but here's the second thing I want to say, and I think this is the main point. When Jesus is giving these instructions in these, first, these verses 5 through 15, it's his way of conveying to his disciples the urgency of the mission. You see, time is of the edge essence, and judgment is coming for Israel. See, we're going to get to this in Matthew 24 where Jesus talks about what's going to happen because of the Jews turning their back on their own Messiah, he tells us that Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. That, that, that the temple is going to be wiped off the face of the map. In fact, we know this is exactly what happens in 70 AD. And what Jesus is saying here is that that time of judgment is coming. It's limited, so get moving, disciples. Okay, look, look at verse and we haven't read this yet, but look down at verse 23. Jesus says, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. And people have debated over and over, what, 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 is that, what does that mean? I think it's not referring to the, to the second coming. It's re, that word, the Son of Man comes, that's an Old Testament phrase. It's, it it talks, and every time in the Old Testament when that phrase is used, that God comes, that's not a good thing, okay? That, that's a sign of judgment. When God visits you in the Old Testament, it is not to have coffee and tea. When, when God visits his people, that is a time for judgment. That's a time for them to, it's like, just wait Till your dad gets home, right? It's kind of, it's that, that, that's the essence of this, right? And Jesus is saying, look, disciples, in your lifetime, for many of you, the gospel will have not finished going out into all of Judea, but then judgment will come. So what's the point? Don't waste time. Get busy. As my friend Joe Godfrey the Brit would say, get cracking. And I don't even know what that means. I just know when she says get cracking, you better get busy doing something, right? 
And I want you to look at the nature of how urgent this mission is. Listen to all the things Jesus tells them not to, not to take or not to bring. He says, don't pack, don't take any money, don't take any shelter, don't take a staff, don't, don't take anything of value, don't wait, don't tarry, get moving. And we have to ask, what kind of international travelers would these guys be, right? Terrible. They could not go on the Apostle Paul trip, obviously. This is Jesus' way of communicating, you men are on a mission. Be strategic. Be on the move. Life is short. Time is of the essence. Now, we might ask, well, that sounds great, Pastor Paul, but come on, what does this have to do with me? I'm just a dude or a woman working a job. I'm a stay-at-home mom. I'm a college student. I, I mean, I've got a lot of stuff going on in my life. I'm not a pastor. I'm not a priest. I'm certainly not an apostle. I just want to go to work and cut my grass and watch the football game. I don't even have a tunic, right? I don't even have a money bag. And most of you uh, boomer dads do. It's, it, it's called your fanny pack. You have one, I know, somewhere. <laughs> Let me say this. In the Bible... That word apostle is used two different ways. Okay, it literally means sent one or messenger. But when it refers to the original 12, apostle, and this might be what we would call apostle capital A, this refers to those men in the first century who were given in a unique authority by Jesus. These were witnesses to the resurrection, they were given a special commission by Jesus. When we read the book of Acts, why is it called Acts? It's the Acts of whom? The apostles who have the authority of Jesus, who are acting on his behalf, who are doing, as we see in these first four verses, many of the things that Jesus has done and did. And it's their job to govern the church as Jesus is away. Now, when the apostles died, the office of apostle died with it. But do you realize we're still under the authority of the apostles? It's called the New Testament. All of them were written by apostles or close associates of apostles. And so, so, when, so sometimes in the New Testament we see this idea that apostles, capital A, refers to this office. But you know there's another way in which apostles, that word is often used. It's used in this sense of apostle little a, and it means one who is sent, one who takes a message on behalf of another. And in that way, it's very proper to say, we are all little apostles. Now, do not misquote me, do not go out there and say, Pastor Paul says, I'm an apostle, okay? We're all apostles little a. Or if you're uncomfortable with that, let me put it this way. We all are called to have this apostolic dimension in our lives. You see, we've all been called into this mission with Jesus Christ. And we're to be strategic, serving, ministering, sharing, speaking, bearing witness, living faithfully, on behalf of Christ. And listen to what 
the Apostle Paul says about this. He says, therefore, we are ambassadors, very similar words, sent one, for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Who is a good ambassador? The one who accurately and faithfully represents the king or the president or the administration. Who makes a bad ambassador? Someone who doesn't speak. Someone who misrepresents the, the king. Someone who forgets their mission. Someone who doesn't go to cabinet meetings. Someone who forgets who they are. Because I don't think it's, it's improper to say that you cannot not be an ambassador. Because understand, Paul doesn't simply say act like an ambassador. He says this, you are. That's who you are as your identity. You're an ambassador. You're an apostle. The only question is, is what kind of ambassador or apostle are you? Are you effectual? Are you alert? Are you on mission? Are you strategic? See, what we see is that in, in God's kingdom, the gospel is never static. It's always fluid. It's always engaging, moving forward. And you don't have to be a full-time pastor or vocational minister to be on mission. In fact, most of us won't. How do we think the gospel spread in the first century? See, Paul would go on missionary journeys, the apostles would, and they would plant little churches, little beachhead, and then he would leave. And the gospel then was spread primarily, what, through people like us all within the context of our homes and relationships and families and cities. And, and, and there is this call here for us to remember that, that Christianity is not, a is, is, not a, um, is not a static reality. It's not an observational religion. We are called to actively participate. What would change in your life for you to think about the fact that I'm on mission, not just when I'm at church for two hours or I'm at community group, but I'm on mission at home with my kids. And I'm on mission when I'm at work, when I'm with my neighbors, when I'm with friends and my college roommates and the people in my class. You see, all of those things Jesus would say, I've strategically placed you there to be my ambassador, to be my apostle. So get busy, get urgent, get cracking. All right, second thing that we want to say about this kingdom is not only is, are we to have a kingdom urgency, but there's also inevitably going to be a kingdom collision. All right, let's look down at verse 16. Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. 
Brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my namesake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When the, they persecute you in one town, flee to the next, for truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, how much more will they malign those of his household? Let me ask you a question. What's your favorite promise of God in Scripture? Maybe it's on one of those calendars that you buy at the beginning of the year. And, and not to make light of it, I mean, the Bible is full of precious promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. I'll not condemn you. Nothing will separate you from the love of Christ. Well, this passage also contains a set of promises, and these probably did not find themselves into your journal, right? This full passage is, is full of, let's be honest, ominous promises for apostles and ambassadors. Just a, a sample. They Think about listen to all the, the, the future-oriented things. They will deliver you. You will be flogged. You will be dragged. Your family members will betray you. You will be hated. That, that's just a sample, right? And obviously these things were certainly particularly true of the apostles. All the apostles, sans John, died martyrs' death, but even John himself suffered horrific persecution and and torture before he ultimately died. And when we think about that, let's be honest, this can just seem so abstract, so distant, so obtuse from our own living situations in the 21st century. And I think there, there can be sort of two equal but opposite wrong reactions to this. One is to sort of go into the woe is me, right? Oh my gosh, Pastor Paul. I am, I, am, I, am, I am subpar here. I, I don't see any of the th these things really happening in my life. D does this mean I need to like, go volunteer to be a, a, a missionary in North Korea and stand on the street corner until Kim Jong-un or whatever his name is comes after me? Is that what I'm supposed to do? I think you could outrun him, by the way. L no, no, no. Okay. L let me just say this. Suffering is a part of God's providence. We can't choose the time and eras that we're born into. All we can do is to live faithfully in them. And whatever else happens is up to God. So, so there have been times in the church's history, big church, universal church, where there have been intense persecutions. There have been times when there have been relative peace. And so this is not a call to go out in an unhealthy way and seek controversy and seek conflict and seek suffering. Um, if we suffer, we want it to be for the gospel's sake, not for the fact that we're a jerk online, right? We, 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 yeah, the, the gospel has plenty of offense on its own without us sort of having to invite it by by being jerks. So I think that's a wrong way to respond to this, okay? However, and as you can imagine, there's, there's also an equal and opposite reaction, and it's that we can simply recoil from this. We can, 
we can tend as 21st century Christians to view suffering as something to be avoided at all costs. In other words, that if, if we're suffering, then somebody somewhere did something wrong. Somebody somewhere must be responsible. Somebody somewhere must come and fix this for us. And we betray our cultural mindset when we get back to the reality that Jesus here in many other places actually promises that if we are being faithful, there's going to be somewhere in our life where there is a collision with those things around us. And if there's not a collision somewhere, fill in the blank for the Holy Spirit, then we're probably not doing it right. Listen to what 1 Peter tells us. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. A lot of times we act shocked, don't we? I can't believe it. I'm, I'm suffering. I can't believe it. People are saying things about me. I can't believe it. But you know, Jesus here tells us that no servant is greater than his master. What does he mean? What is the primary identity of Jesus in his earthly ministry? Hint, suffering servant. This is why he says, you must deny yourself, pick up your cross, your electric chair, your gas chamber, your hangman's noose, and follow me. And the, the way, and, and this is so hard, I don't, let me just say, I don't like this in my flesh. But it seems that the way that Jesus reveals himself most powerfully to his people is through suffering. Paul says, I'm filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. In other words, Paul says, as I suffer, I identify with Jesus. As I suffer, I run to Jesus. As I suffer, I, I understand and know Jesus better. Now, I want you to notice something as well in this text. Because there's a lot of talk today about what it means to be a faithful presence, okay? A faithful witness. And, and by that, it's oftentimes meant the way we live our lives. That's, that's key to gospel effectiveness. And let me just say, I absolutely agree in part that faithful witness or faithful presence, living a godly life is and, and, and not stirring up unneeded controversy is absolutely part of our Christian witness. But I want you to notice how many times in these verses Jesus talks about words. Jesus talks about speaking. Listen to what he says. Do not be anxious about what to say. Do not be anxious about how you speak. Because it's, an imp it's impossible to be an ambassador without speaking, without using words. You see, somehow we've equated faithful presence to meaning we just keep to ourselves. And we don't say anything. Church, let's remember, Christianity, the kingdom of God, is a speaking religion and what we're what we see here is that Jesus is putting a premium not just on urgency but on 
conversation, upon words. And if we're not experiencing, again, some sort of collision in our lives between the values of the world and our witness for Jesus, my guess is we're probably not speaking. And the reason I guess that, because I know it's true for me, I, I look at this and I say, you know, you know who needs to hear this the most? Pastors. Me. Because when we're in ministry, see, we're talking to Christians all the time. And not that it's always easy, but it's much easier to be conversant in the kingdom when people share your worldview. It's a whole different matter when you're, dorm, when you're in your dorm room or in your neighborhood or at your business or when you're play group. And so guys, just understand if the extent of your witness and my witness is that our neighbors who we never talk to, but we take the trash out every day faithfully and we say, you know, I'm taking the tra trash out faithfully. I'm doing it quietly. I'm picking everything up and I'm neat. I'm, somehow they're just going to mystically, magically notice I take the trash out differently than everybody else. It doesn't work that way. Take your trash out, by the way. Absolutely. But talk to your neighbor. Thirdly, not only is there a kingdom urgency and a kingdom collision about our lives, but there is a kingdom, and I, I did make this word up, so don't try to find it, emboldenedness. Let's look at verse 26. So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. I don't think I'm exaggerating when I say that we're, we're an exceedingly fearful culture, aren't we? I mean, never has a society had so much, so many resources, and so much relative security to the rest of the history of the world, yet been so fearful. And I blame Facebook. Um, I mean, in, really, seriously, in, in part, right? But no doubt, this fear has bled into our Christian witness. Well, Pastor Paul, I couldn't say that. I mean, that's kind of like, I see him every day at the gym, and oh, that'd be awkward. Or, you know, I, you know, I, I, you know I'm, in, I'm in, he's my coworker, and, you know, that would just make things weird. And, you know, their kids and my kids, we, they play t-ball together. I, I, you know, we, we talk around this. But Jesus is very clear here, isn't he? He says, do not fear. And the antidote for do not fear is not, I'm going to try really hard, I'm not going to fear, I'm not going to fear, I'm not going to fear, right? That's not the antidote. 
the antidote is to replace that fear with a greater truth. And Jesus reminds us what that greater truth is. He says, don't fear those who can kill your body. He doesn't say don't fear them because they won't. He just says don't fear them. That's not something to be feared. What you really want to fear, Jesus says, is the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. You see, this life is temporary. It's a mist. It's a vapor. But Jesus says, my kingdom and hell are eternal. They're ongoing. What's the key? They oftentimes ask this question. And I think I saw this in Band of Brothers, one of the episodes. But but I think there's a conversation among the soldiers. And they're asking, well, what's, what's the key for soldiers being able to not fear and to go bravely into battle. What's the, what's the key? And this may sound like a paradox, but the paradox is this. The key to going into battle and not fearing is simply to tell yourself there is no hope. Well, that sounds great. There is no hope. In other words, I don't expect to get out of here. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to lose my life. There's probably going to be some sort of claim. And the fact that they accept that fate then paradoxically gives them the courage to go into battle because their thought is, what's the worst that can happen? Church, what's the worst that can happen to you? I mean, I'm seriously, in this life, what's the worst that can happen to you? You die, you're, you, you suffer, you lose your job, there's, there's unspeakable loss, Something happens with your, your children, that's a paralyzing fear. But the gospel key here is to say, so what? Second Corinthians 4 tells us this, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. And here's the key, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. That's the truth you need to ask God just to write over your heart. Your fear, my fear, will never be overcome by willpower, by trying harder. It's overcome by the replacement of a greater truth. One last thing before we leave this point. What does Jesus mean when he says in verse 32 and 33, because this is, let's be honest, a little ominous, scary. He says, everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge. Those who don't acknowledge me, I will not acknowledge in heaven. It's a reminder of a couple things. Number one, Christianity is an identity you carry everywhere with you. Christianity is not a private religion. And as such, we carry it into all of our relationships. But this is not a tit-for-tat sort of conditional thing. You blow it once, you don't speak up, you're being unfaithful, God, you denied God, God's going to deny you. Do, do you know why that's not true? One, just as an example from Scripture, who is, who is case example for this? Peter. And... Peter failed miserably, and a lot of us might feel like Peter right now. Pastor Paul, I've just been swinging and missing when it comes to this, or actually I just haven't even been getting up to the plate. 
And, but we look at Peter who demonstrates the ultimate denial, but restored by Jesus by his grace. We're not talking about temporary lapses. We're not even talking about one, two, three, four, or five moral failures. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a settled course of action that characterizes your whole life. And I think Jesus would say that person who has a settled character of their whole life that they want no one to know what's going on in their private religious life, maybe, just maybe, that person doesn't understand the kingdom. Maybe, just maybe, that person doesn't understand what it means to carry the identity of Christ with them. Let the Holy Spirit do his own work in your heart. But, you know, let me tell you where I've I've seen this amazingly enough, is with, with my dad. And a lot of you have been asking about him. He's uh, in stage four, pain, uh, has pancreatic cancer right now. He's exhausted all of his treatment options, and um, he has just a very short season to, to live. They've exhausted all treatment. But I've seen something amazing happen to him in this season. And what's amazing is that he is flourishing, he is, he's sorrowful, but he's always rejoicing. And he seems to be emboldened by the stage of life that he's in. It's almost like, I want to leave it all out on the field. And so they, they sent a video of, of him, he's 82 years old, hates speaking in front of groups, of sharing his gospel with a bunch of middle schoolers, which we also know is another level of Dante's hell, right? Let's be honest, okay? And I'm like, who is this man? I mean, he, my dad's always been faithful, shared his faith, all that. But there is an uncanny emboldenedness because he's grabbed onto a greater reality. Because that's all of our fate. You know this, right? We just deceive ourselves that it's not. Which is why we are called to have a, a gospel urgency and a gospel collision and a gospel emboldenedness, and finally, and this will be quick, a kingdom priority. Look at, look at verse 34. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives you receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Not to frighten you, but you know Thanksgiving holidays are about eight weeks away. And I, instead of like standing up and reading Psalm 1 at your Thanksgiving dinner, read this passage and just see what happens, right? <laughs> Try it at your own peril. Guys, what is, what's going on here? Jesus is using hyperbole to, to make, a, a, I think, a, a pretty clear point. And, and, and the point is this, that in God's kingdom, there is only one family. 
There's only one forever family. And as awesome as family is in this life, and it is awesome, and it is a God-given institution, and we need to protect it and value and hold it up, but we never want to mistake it for something that it's not. It's all a pointer to the family of God. Parents, one of the greatest gifts that you can give your children is the family of God. And when we prioritize the kingdom, we will find that we are prioritizing the family of God. Now, what is an awesome thing, of course, is when our family and the family of God overlap. Remember that Venn diagram? I mean, that's a precious thing, but it doesn't always happen. Church, trust the Lord that as you run towards Christian relationship and as you run towards Christian community, as you run towards Christian mission, God will take care of the rest. But for us, it's very simple. Seek first the kingdom of God. And then all these things will be added to you. It does not say seek first the things that we would highly value in this world and maybe a little kingdom gets sprinkled into it. It says prioritize my kingdom and I will take care of the rest. Because how, how did this happen? How is it possible that Jesus invites not just the 12, but all of us into his mission of redeeming the world? How does that happen? It didn't happen by a glorious, triumphal victory, processional march. It happened by a death march literally to a cross. Where Jesus says, I'm going to lay down my life for my sheep and for my people who could not save themselves, who, 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 who could not be on mission, who were wandering around hopeless and lost, but I've laid my life down, not because they've been faithful, because we've been unfaithful. But through him, we receive the righteousness of Christ. And when we come to the table, we don't come as defeated witnesses. We come as hope-filled witnesses. To say, God, it is by your grace that I've been saved. And it is by your grace that I want to grow to be on mission for you. Let me ask you to bow your heads. Take just a moment or two to prepare your hearts to come to the table. And I'm going to ask our leaders to come forward and prepare to serve the elements.